Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. I'm your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app. All the time, 24-6. And we are proud to be sponsored by Beckerman, BeckermanPR.com, Beckerman Public Affairs. Tell your story with Beckerman. Another great show in the political world coming up tonight. And... Today, tonight, it's summertime, so already springtime, so days and nights, there's a all relative term. But we had a special, two special elections in New York City this week, and we'll recap uh, at least one of them, if maybe two of them. Uh, one for Congress, that was a big one, relatively to fill the seat vacated by Michael Grimm in Staten Island in southern Brooklyn, and uh, decisively won by the Republican Dan Donovan. So now there is a Still one Republican in the New York City congressional delegation. And then another one, interesting one, uh, for an assembly seat vacated by Kareem Kamara in the 43rd Assembly District in Brooklyn, encompassing Crown Heights and East Flatbush. And that was interesting because unlike any election I can remember, there was no Democratic candidate on that ballot. And usually the Democrat will win almost all the time in Brooklyn, particularly in that part of Brooklyn. In fact, often others don't even bother running. There's usually only one candidate in the general election. So in that case, the Working Families Party, and if you haven't heard of the Working Families Party, we've discussed them before, is a left, uh, to the left of the Democratic Party, party here in New York, a minor party. They have elected on their own, on their own line, the first assembly person to the assembly of the state of New York. So that's an interesting political footnote there. But there's also all kinds of stuff going on. A whole lot of other people in the presidential race. As we mentioned last week, Bernie Sanders is now in. So we're expecting other Democrats potentially to get in. None of the major stature is thought to threaten the front runner of Hillary Clinton, who's having her own issues with her rollout. And I think some hiccups with the Clinton Foundation hasn't yet gotten her footing to determine the how she is going in between navigating the choppy waters of the political world, family, Bill, the huge presence of Bill Clinton continues to hover over the political world, particularly on the Democratic side. And, of course, the Israeli elections, that's uh, that's out there. And uh, the election is still going on. I say the election is still going on because we still don't have a government. And uh, that's going to actually uh, – that that's you know any second now. So uh, we'll see. And it's more of a game of poker rather than chess right now, and I'll explain that a little bit later. And then we're going to recap because we only gave it short shrift. We are hoping last week that we'd have some more Bridgegate information. And Scandal is now – Yet again, front page news in both New York and New Jersey at the same time. And we seem to really not be able to get away from it. So we're going to have Zach Fink back on, who is our go-to guy for Jersey. And not only is he going to talk about Jersey, but we'll talk about Albany as well. Uh, a good friend of the Jewish community, my own state senator, Dean Skelos, finds himself in the crosshairs of the U.S. Attorney, U.S. Attorney Pre Barrara. And we have the interesting phenomenon that... We started this year with an assembly speaker, Sheldon Silver, who is now in whose district I sit right now, and he is under indictment awaiting trial. That will happen in November. And now we have the majority leader of the state Senate, still the majority leader of the state Senate, in whose district I sleep. Uh, he is going awaiting indictment, and he is, has been arrested and uh, yet uh, we have read charges. We've read a 43-page uh, uh, set of charges against him, uh, against him and his son, Adam Skelos. And we'll see. Let's see what happens. Uh, he is still hanging on to that leadership post. It's unclear how long that will uh, happen. But uh, I, if he has the talent and has the uh, steely determination, he can make it to the end of the session, which uh, ends in June and he dismisses and says he will be fully exonerated of all the charges. And uh, c- certainly we do respect the idea of innocent until proven guilty. And certainly uh, in that is the legal standard. But in politics, sometimes it's a little bit different of a standard. There's also issues as far as governing. So we'll unpack that a little bit later in the show. 
Uh, first, I want to welcome to the show, uh, no stranger to anything going on in the Jewish community and Jewish politics, Costco Bennett, uh, community activist and Uber community activist. I like using the word Uber these days. Uh, there's an Uber for everything. So now we have an Uber community activist on the line, Costco Bennett of Brooklyn, uh, who is involved in uh, many, many of the races that go on, but particularly involved in the congressional race that occurred, the special election that happened this week where Dan Donovan, the Republican, was victorious. And you have that situation where the lone Republican of the congressional delegation, Costco, welcome to spin class. Pleasure to be here, Michael. Thanks. So give us a rundown about what you saw, you know, your level of activity. You don't actually live in the district, but you felt this seat was important for the Jewish community. Absolutely. It seems like uh, I don't always often live in the district that I'm fighting for, but I think that everybody would appreciate the idea that any district that represents a sizable portion of Orthodox Jews is, is our district and, and, and therefore important to our community, uh, no matter where that district might be, whether it's, uh, it's it could be upstate New York, it could be in uh, in Muncie, it could be in, uh, in Queens, or in this case, it could be Staten Island slash uh, the southern tier of uh, Brooklyn. And uh, and so, therefore, I felt that was something that we needed to be involved with. And uh, with the help of several uh, very, very unsung, tireless, really uh, good people, uh, we tried to help the Donovan uh, campaign in a few ways that we could. And uh, I'm very pleased uh, that he was victorious. So let's talk for a second about a special election and how you approach it. You've been involved in special elections in the past. Uh, I think you know, Bob Turner comes to mind and David Strobin comes to mind, some of the uh, some of the names from the past that have be- had won election in special elections. This one was a little bit different because a lot of times with the in these special elections, it's really, really uh, it's tight and everybody you know feels a lot of tension and nobody really knows the outcome. A lot of people felt that Donovan was going to walk away with this. Yes, I do agree with that. I think uh, the, the biggest indicator for people who are on the inside baseball, as you like to call it, people who know what's really happening, is whether or not the national party is getting involved uh, with resources, manpower, etc., in a certain race. Uh, and let's just you, you will use this race in particular just to focus on it for a moment. The DCCC uh, abandoned ship quite early here. I think they even abandoned ship before there was even a nominee, somebody who had stepped forward. And Vinny Gentili, is, to my understanding, was not the first choice as well. They had wanted a few other people uh, to, to jump in, and they pulled out, or never, never really jumped in to begin with. So when the national party doesn't doesn't show any interest or appetite for for spending money, that sort of sends a message to the rank and file of, of people on the ground, whether it's the activists who are supporting a certain candidate. Uh, you know, you're on your own. Good luck. And I think that's what happened to Vinny Gentili, irrespective of the fact that Donovan is an excellent, uh, was an excellent candidate. But you met with Vinny Gentili, uh, you and others met, and he did, he did in fact reach out to the Orthodox community. Uh, what was the, what was the message that he came with? Uh, was it, was it more about party? Was it about message? Was it about person? Uh, what, what made people in the, in the community, uh, support one over the other? Well, Let's understand, Vinny Gentili, we, we reached out to him because we reach out to all candidates uh, who are running for office, major candidates, that is, for running for office. And simply, I, I, I had never personally had spoken to him. I met him once or twice just in passing. actually met him at the APAC uh, event in Washington a month or two ago, and we said that we would get together. Um, Vinny Gentili nice, seemed like a very nice candidate. He seemed like a very uh, well-spoken, uh, well-read on the issues, uh, uh, very energetic. He seemed like a nice person, a good guy. And, and in another race, I'm not sure that I would uh, necessarily have gone against him per se. Uh, I could see myself supporting a Vinny Gentili uh, in, in the right circumstances, uh, depending on who he was running in the primary uh, on the Democratic side. Uh, with, with that said, he understood the issues that we were facing. He was seemed sympathetic to, to the issues of school choice, although he wouldn't outright come out and say it. Um, he, he identified himself as a non-progressive, uh, which, which got our attention. Uh, we had asked him if he was being supported by, uh, by the UFT, and he said he had not at that point received uh, the support from the UFT. Again, that grabbed our attention. 
And so, you know, for a lot of different reasons, uh, we, we, and again, I'm speaking only for myself, for, for a very important reason, I decided to, to go with Dan Donovan, and that was simply because I felt that, as did others, uh, and I'll just point to the Daily News endorsement of Donovan, per se, to give you an idea of where I was thinking. New York City needs a Republican voice in a Republican-held Congress. Uh, for all the right reasons of Dan Donovan being a, a well-respected and a man of integrity, let's, we'll get to that in a moment. But simply on the politics and on the, on the understanding of the political landscape right now, I believe that New York City needs a Republican in the House. Uh, the Daily News agreed with that uh, sentiment. I feel, I feel very strongly that Israel needs a Republican voice uh, in the House that's representing our community. We have wonderful voices on the Democratic side. I think that we, our community would be very well served with having a, a Republican from New York City speaking to that. Uh, and I felt that it was uh, at the right place at the right time, that he was a candidate who, who had made very significant outreach to the community, wanted to understand the issues, wanted to, to really get a good handle on, on it, and, and pledged his tireless support for the issues that were important to us. And so for those reasons and a few others, I felt that this was a guy who, who had a very good chance to win and, and with the right help and the right you know uh, ground game, certainly getting some people out in Staten Island and in Brooklyn, we could help him, and we did. So let's talk. We're talking to Costco Bennett here on Spin Class, uh, political activist, trustee of A Good of Israel. Let's talk for a second about outreach. You mentioned the outreach to the community, not necessarily your outreach to, to candidates, but the other way. There seems to be, and I guess one, indica- one indicator of it is the uh, visit last week of uh, Republican presidential candidate Rand Paul to uh, southern Brooklyn, to the heart of the Orthodox community. Are yep. you – you're – Clearly, we're seeing objectively the increased attention to the Orthodox community. It's been written about uh, actually quite a bit in the last couple of weeks in various publications. We're going to talk about that with our guest, uh, Tevi Troy, a little bit later. Uh, but, Haskell, as, a, as an activist in Brooklyn, what are you seeing about the level of attention coming to the Orthodox community? Uh, e- either, and as a good Israel activist, I guess you could even talk about that around the country. I think that there are two. Uh, issues that are resonating with Orthodox voters particularly and have been embraced by the Republican Party. I'm not saying that they're being ignored by the Democratic Party. I'm absolutely not saying that and don't want to be misquoted as saying that. But I think two very, very large issues, uh, one domestic and one uh, international, uh, have been embraced by the Republican Party in a way that we've not seen, uh, maybe even in my lifetime. And that is incredible uh, 100% unanimous support for the U.S.-Israel relationship in a way that, that has just been really just impressive. Uh, if you care about Israel, you care about the security and the, the well-being of Jews in Israel and the state of Israel. Um, that uh, that issue, the Republicans have made that a central point in their outreach to the Jewish community in per se, and I think that they see that the Orthodox Jewish community uh, are a little bit more conservative than their counterparts in the secular Jewish community, who have historically been more left-leaning in their politics uh, and, and more identifiable with the Democratic Party. Again, we have a lot of friends on the Democratic Party, and I like them, and I work with them, and I try to encourage them to be as supportive as possible. We all do. Uh, and then again, let's understand we're in New York City, so we're in a democratic city. And so therefore, we will always be in tune and in touch with our democratic friends and hope that they are there with us. And the second issue, which is more domestic, but nonetheless, the number one, in my opinion, issue that affects Jews, Orthodox Jews, from across the spectrum, and that is, of course, school choice and educational issues, uh, support for, for education, for, for the opportunity to pick and choose and to be able to have more support from the government and in, uh, to be able to help us uh, with our educational problems. And, again, there you see the Republican Party uh, sort of uh, out there, understanding the issue and, and going towards it. I mean, you were there when I asked Rand Paul directly, and he was emphatic in his support for school choice. And uh, and you'll see some of the other candidates who are going to come out of the Republican Party, whether it's Jeb Bush or Scott Walker or, or, or Rick Perry or whoever it might be. Uh, they're all 
absolutely 100% school choice people, uh, people who've been out there. And, and for us, that's a very important issue. So I think that's why you see that, that outreach where they identify with major issues that are, are, are affecting our community. And I think that you've seen a reciprocation. We've all seen it, and uh, not only in financial support, but in, in the electorate. You're talking about not necessarily New York, which is the blue of the blue, but we're talking about in Wisconsin where there's a Jewish community, in Florida, battleground states, and in Ohio. There are Jews out there. Orthodox Jews who are growing, and you will see a significant outreach by, by candidates, both on the national level and on the statewide level, for, for that vote. And I think we're watching that happen. Now, do you think it's ironic for a second that a Republican presidential candidate comes to stump in a predominantly Democratic area where even if people will vote Republican in the general election – they won't they aren't necessarily going to be able to vote in the primary which is the issue at hand is there is there an it, what's the what's the message there is it is that if by coming to the heart of the orthodox community i'm reaching out to all jews or it's uh it's you know it's just a a general yeah, I, I'm just trying to. I'm I trying think, to figure I think, out I think the, the be plan. A, a multitude of answers towards that. I'm sure you have your own. You're you're very astute in these matters. I think you have a, probably a very good answer. So I'd love to give mine and then hear yours. Actually, my answer is it's a combination. I think that there's no question they're not looking necessarily, and I don't think they anticipate getting the Orthodox Jewish vote in Brooklyn, and not that it would mean much anyway. Uh, I don't I don't know if New York has gone uh, you know towards a, a Republican. In my lifetime, I mean, if if it did, you can tell me that. I don't know the answer to that. Well, I I, I would never guess your age on on the air, Haskell. But uh, <laughs> but Ronald Reagan did carry New York in 1984. Okay, so I, I was a pretty young guy when that happened. So 1984, uh, I, I think I was 12. So the point I, I, again, that, you don't have to say your age on the air. <laughs> that, so the the point is, I don't think that a guy like Rand Paul is coming to New York necessarily because he thinks that he's going to win Brooklyn and he's going to influence. Uh, the electoral college math to get to get where he needs to go. That, with that said, I think that Rand Paul is looking to shore up his bona fides on on the uh, relationship that he has with the Jewish community, and I think that it's an opportunity for him to weigh in on issues that are near and dear to the broader Jewish community, not just New York, but the national Jewish community, and says, "Look, I'm I'm going to the heart." Of, of the Orthodox Jewish community, and your issues are important to me, and here's what I think on those issues. And, and I think we saw with Rand Paul's, his visit was covered by by uh, multiple multitudes of, 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 of media, both uh, online and, and print, uh, you know, with mixed reviews, but for the most part, he got the coverage he was seeking. And I think that the Orthodox Jewish community gets an opportunity to show that, that uh, we're a growing force and we matter, and uh, all politics is local, and we should never forget that. Absolutely, no question. And Chasko, last last question for you. And I, I wanna I wanna just be sensitive because a sensitive issue. I alluded to it right before we got on. Is the the tum, tumults, I guess, uh, tumultuous uh, times in Albany, given the level of scandal, and there are clearly things on the agenda of the Orthodox community in particular, or the Jewish community, or I'd say, you know, the broader community, uh, such as the education investment tax credit, that's still on the table. Um, and some of the things that are going on, as we talked about, uh, as as far as legislative leaders in legal trouble, uh, has a p- potential to to jeopardize passage of that. Uh, is there a plan B? What What's the approach of activists such as yourself uh, now in in kind of navigating this situation? I think that uh, the excellent point, and I think that there is really not a good answer to that question yet. Uh, even in the assembly, this last session was, was just a new dynamic completely. Uh, and for activists who are out there who care about the issues that are important to our community, we're working with the, with the hands that we are dealt. I think every community out there sees their parochial issue with the same view that they're not sure. You know, historically, those who have been able to move legislation forward because there was a Republican-dominated state Senate uh, and a sympathetic, so to speak, speaker on certain issues in the Assembly, uh, that was the way business was done in the past. I think that we all... Uh, have a new uh, a new landscape, and uh, I view this with the same uh, the same uh, worrisome view that you probably do, and we all do. It's it's not good. 
it's not good for New York. It's not good for our community. Um, we, we have been there's a lot of important issues that are bigger than any one person uh, that affect thousands of New Yorkers, and we uh, we need to make progress. And the, you mentioned the EITC, but there's a lot of other issues on the table right now that, that really affect New Yorkers in a very significant way, both for the Jewish community and for all New Yorkers. You know, people don't want to see the whole world turned upside down. They would like to see progress. I think the governor would like to see progress. We'd like to see a session now that has actual tangible results for New Yorkers, you know, not just for Orthodox Jews, for all of us. Uh, we live here. We invest here. We, 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 we spend, a, spend a significant amount of money here. Uh, we care about New York State, and I, so I, I share the view of others in terms of my, my worrisome. I'm worried uh, about the future, but I do know that we will do the best we can with, with, the, uh, with the hands that we are dealt, and we will absolutely give a 100% effort and, and hope for the best. Okay, Chasko Bennett, uh, community activist, Askin, uh, Uber Askin, as well as a trustee of Agudath Israel of America, and really thanks for that political analysis, recap, as well as uh, looking forward at uh, some of the challenges that one has uh, in moving things along, particularly in this environment uh, uh, here in New York. Thanks for joining us, and we'll hope to have you again very soon. Pleasure, Michael. Thank you. This is Spin Class, and we are talking politics. Once again, we're pleased to have back on the show Zach Fink of New York One, Time Warner Cable, other titles, but our go-to guy on all things. I, You know what? I was going to say go-to guy with all things Bridgegate, but now we're just talking scandal across the board, Zach. So I'm going to give you our – you're going to be our go-to scandal guy. Is that okay scandal for you? Guy, I like it, yes. Exactly. And, you know, before we get to Bridgegate, because I know we cut short last week because we thought we'd have more news, and that news came out on Friday. It was Thursday, and, you know. Uh, but now, officially, in Politico, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, New York has been now called the national capital of scandal. And, uh, you know, there was a big uh, article, congratulations, New York, you are the capital of scandal. The last five, last five, and I'm going to let that number sink in for a second, Senate majority leaders have been either indicted, arrested, tried, one was exonerated, and uh, just, uh, it's really incredible, um, it's really incredible when you think about it, that that's actually happened, and it's happening again today, again, Innocent until proven guilty. I don't want to go ahead and, and say anything uh, about other than the chart, the fact that there are charges on the table against Senate Majority Leader Dean Skelos. But no question, it's a it's a difficult it's a difficult day for anybody involved in politics in New York State. So if you can just take a second before we get to Jersey, talk for a second about the charges against Dean Skelos. What's going on? He's still in the leadership position. And uh, what do you think is going to happen? And we just talked to a community activist who's really worried about things that they have in the agenda for the rest of the session. Yeah, I mean, I think, Michael, there, there is an emerging consensus, at least among, um, you know, certainly Democrats, but even with some other Republicans are chiming in and starting to call for, for Dean Skelos' ouster. He gave a press availability yesterday, Dean Skelos did, where he was very defiant and said he's not going anywhere and he's going to remain place and all of the things that need to be negotiated need to be negotiated and he intends to do that. You know, as we're coming up to the end of the session, there are a handful of things that must be renewed. One of them is the rent control laws. Uh, another one is mayoral control of schools. And another one is 421A, which is the tax abatement that allows luxury development. Now, the thing about 421A is that it needs to be negotiated. There's the talk of making some changes. 421A goes to the very heart of the complaint against Skelos because this involves a developer who is talked about in the complaint, and they benefit directly. So it's going to be very difficult, the sort of, you know, talk and chatter around here, for Senator Skelos to get in a room and negotiate something like that when he's directly implicated in that complaint on that particular issue. So it's becoming more and more obvious, I think, that he is going to have to step down. It's just a question of when that happens. So it's similar to the Silver situation. Silver thought he could hang on, thought he was going to kind of have the, a temporary governing structure, if you will, of the uh, of the uh, of the assembly, and that didn't quite work out. But I, there's a difference here because Silver's majority, which is uh, of the, of the assembly, is over a hundred. I mean, I think 108, 107 of, or maybe 105 uh, out of 150. 
Uh, here, the Republicans have a very precarious majority in the Senate. So any changes are very risky for Republicans. But no doubt about it. I mean, look, the last person you mentioned, Sheldon Silver, I mean, the last person to know he's done is usually the leader. <laughs> you know, they, in fact, it took the Democrats in the Assembly, and this was just earlier this year, um, having a conference without Silver, because the first conference they had with him in the room, no one would speak up. When he wasn't in the room, suddenly everybody started to say, okay, this is no good, he's got to go. So the Republicans in the Senate have yet to do that. But to your point, which is a, is a, is a very important one, you know, the Republicans have a 32-seat razor-thin majority. You need 32 seats to control the Senate. With, in essence, if they were to pick a new leader, Senator Skelos would have to vote against himself. In addition, the number two Republican, who would be the logical successor, is Tom Libis of Binghamton, who is not here. He's very ill. He's in Florida trying to recover. So you don't have, number one, a consensus candidate, which is part of the problem. Number two... You don't really have the math in the Senate Republican conference to even vote for whoever that might be. So it's a little more chaotic, this situation. And you're right to the point about these Democrats. They were a straight-up majority. It didn't matter what anybody else said. The decision was going to be made by them when they were ready, and that's ultimately what they did. Uh, in the Republicans, the math makes things, Michael, a little more complicated. Right. And, and actually... We- we should remind everybody, and if you're not sitting down, you probably should be, uh, that Tom Libis is also under indictment. So the number he, two, he so you would actually, in yeah. addition to being terminally ill, unfortunately, and you know, hopefully he'll recover, but uh, he is also under indictment, also with something involving his son. Yeah, correct, and 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 that was that was another issue, and you know, the, there was a consensus here among Republicans that in that particular case, he was being railroaded, that they they basically indicted him to get to his son. Um, you know, Skelos has been basically trying to make the same argument, but it doesn't seem to be flying as well as Libis was able to do. Also, I think there's, you know, people are obviously very concerned about Senator Libis and his health, but there just hasn't been a real focus on, you know, asking him to step down, for example. Right. I mean, no question, you know, that the, and the charges are, you know, he's facing one count of, of lying to the FBI, and which is obviously different uh, than six charges of, of corruption. Uh, if you will, not that it makes any anybody any politician being uh, being charged and you know awaiting trial by the feds. But uh, let me just as just as I want to transition to New Jersey for a second, but uh, because it's very difficult for for everybody to kind of digest what's going on in Albany. And if you think of the if everybody out there should think of the just absolute turmoil that's out there just because of the idea that. They were tapping the phones of politicians. So, and clearly the FBI or whoever it is is listening in and is, is looking for any type of quid pro quo deals and the like. So that just has, and, and it, it's the wrong way to say, it, but it has a chilling effect on the way Albany works or any state capital would work if you don't know if you can talk to the guy next to you because he might be wearing a wire and looking to turn you in. Yeah, I, I think that's true, and I think there is, I mean, for example, Sheldon Silver, who remains a rank-and-file member of the Assembly, I mean, no one will talk to him. I mean, it's a very strange situation where the guy was the Speaker, and then, you know, a week later, he's just a guy sitting in the chamber, and none of the members will even talk to him. And one of the theories floated to me was that they were, people are afraid he's wearing a wire. They, they don't want to go anywhere near him. Um, so, you know, it, it, it does put a chill. I mean, this has been going on for a couple of years since I've been here. I mean, starting in 2013, we had that initial round of scandals. There was a lot of, and it turns out there had been some lawmakers wearing wires. So, yeah, people are careful. I mean, that there, there also is, is a growing sentiment here, I think, that people just, the lawmakers don't want to be, don't want to be here. They, they want to do what they have to do and get out of Dodge. You know, they just don't, don't want to be up here at all. Okay, let's let's switch to Jersey, and I want to segue by saying that I it was pointed out to me by a listener that I referred mistakenly referred to David Sampson, who we were discussing last week, as John Sampson. And for those of you scoring at home, John Sampson is the former majority leader of the state senate, um, previous to Skelos, uh, who is also under indictment and is awaiting trial on different uh, fraud and other charges. So uh, not necessarily related to being in the Senate there, uh, but other other charges. So uh, so 
I, I made that mistake last week, and uh, we'll talk about David Sampson, a different guy. But let's talk about the players now in Bridgegate. David Wildstein pleads guilty and implicates two other people, Bridget Ann Kelly, as well as Bill Baroni. What's going on there? Is When is this thing going to be put to bed? And is as Chris Christie feels that he's he now says, well, it, I proved the story that I had nothing to do with it, done, gone, put to bed, over, stop asking me about it. I think he's certainly trying to do that, and I think there, you know, look, I, I don't think, we, we discussed, you and I on the phone last Thursday before this all came down, I, you know, we, we talked about the fact that if we don't think, at least I didn't think Christie was going to be directly implicated, I think if there was evidence of it out there, we would have seen it already, uh, that doesn't mean that this is a good story for him, in fact, quite the opposite, you know, it really, you know, he had Harvard presidential ambitions, I mean, there was a time in 2012 when he was urged to run, could have probably got the nomination, declined to do so, this scandal really undid any sort of, you know, ability he might have been to parlay this into a White House bid, I think his political career, you know, is is in jeopardy, what he's not going to have to do is resign the governorship, it looks like, there was some talk of that, uh, assuming that there were multiple indictments in the Bridgegate scandal and it went as far up as him, that doesn't look likely, it looks like he'll be perhaps weakened, but you know, he'll be able to remain in his position. And far, as far as going any far, you know, further in, 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 in terms of national office, I think, I think this pretty much puts that to bed. So what's next for, for these various players? Uh, okay. So I just set it up because I, I don't follow Jersey as close. David Wildstein has his lawyers intimated that there's more to come. Is that more than Bridget Ann Kelly as, and Bill Baroni? Are there other chips that other people are going to fall it seemed like the u.s attorney was saying this is it this is the results of our investigation uh where where are we at you know and how you know how much longer can we expect this if we take christie out of the picture and say okay he's not going to be implicated but does this continue to have a life or have we kind of closed the is the chapter now you know is this chapter done we have the trials and then you know the the unfolding of it is kind of over yeah, I, I mean, I think it, it, it enters a much quieter period now. I and mean, I think that, that there was so much at stake because of Christie's stature. And now, you know, we get into the individual defense of Bridget Kelly and Bill Baroni, who most people didn't really know who they were until this scandal exploded into the headlines a couple of years ago. So, you know, and in terms of what Bridget Kelly's defense is going to look like, she's basically, I, I believe her and her lawyers are going to claim that there was no conspiracy, that David Wildstein who claims that there was is a liar. I think Bill Baroni is going to make the same claim. You know, that's going to have to be hashed out in the courts, uh, you, you know, in a trial, presumably before a jury. Um, so, that, you know, that goes on to the next phase. It, it, it's almost in a lot of ways a, a bit of, you know, sort of ended with a bit of a whimper. And, uh, the whole scandal was so potent, such a big news story for so long. And then, you know, once it actually came down, it, it, it wound up being, you know, it was pretty limited in its scope, didn't go anywhere near Christie. Um, you know, there were those issues with Sampson and, the, and the, the chairman's flight that you and I discussed last week. That could be a whole separate investigation. So, you know, clearly in the bridge matter itself, it, it appears to be wrapped up in, ter- in terms of who's actually going to be implicated in it. And, um, you know, Christine not among them. Now, if I can ask you like a, a commentary type question, Zach. Uh, about New York and New Jersey, and we're really talking scandal, right, across the board with different officials. Okay, if I can ask you just a commentary type question, what is going on? What's in the water here uh, that that is that we are having the subject of so many scandals? Uh, you know, in both cases, I mean, it's just it's just amazing. And you're a journalist; you're close to it. You speak to these people. I mean, are they not aware that people are watching? That the feds are watching? That journalists are watching? That that people are going to find these things out? You know, I, it's a good question. I mean, I, you know, you, you certainly have extraordinarily good career prosecutors who are looking at these things. So in some ways, in the number one market, so to speak, in the world, which New Jersey arguably falls under also, um, you have some very top-notch people who are digging around looking for stuff. So, so you start with that. In terms of the, the, you know, if something was pervasive in the culture of that part of the world, you know, it's hard to say that with a broad brush. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I know from covering New Jersey for 13 years, which I did, that one of the big problems you have out there is that you have layer upon layer upon layer of government. There is just 
an awful lot of people swimming around for contracts and all kinds of things and, and eventually graft and moving your company up to the top of somebody's priority list, uh, inevitably the things are going to happen. I mean, you have 566 municipalities, you have county governments. So that was one of the reasons. This is not my theory, by the way. Just what, what you talk to people in Jersey and they explain, you know, one of the issues that why there seems to be such widespread corruption is that there's many opportunities for corruption to take place involving, you know, many facets of public money. Right. Um, right, Jack, I actually, I just got word from the control room that, uh, uh, Congressman, new Congressman Dan Donovan has called into the show. Uh, so I'm going to have to cut you short for this, for this segment and I apologize for that, but we're going to pick it up. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be something to pick up because it seems that every week we have more scandal in New York uh, and New Jersey. So I appreciate the analysis, uh, and I hope you don't mind. I'm going to switch over to new, newly elected Congressman Dan Donovan uh, right now. Zach, thanks for joining us here on Spin Class. Thanks so much, Michael. I appreciate it. And uh, this is Spin Class sponsored by Beckerman, and I'm pleased to have uh, right, to, right after election, uh, newly minted Congressman Dan Donovan of Staten Island in Brooklyn represented the 11th Congressional District and is, uh, I think we have the case that you're kind of become congressman immediately. Not, you don't have to wait like you do in a regular election. Correct, Dan? Yeah, Mike, I'm here. Hey, okay, so you don't have to wait. You're congressman already, not congressman elect, right? No, I'm congressman elect. I'm not a congressman yet. Oh, okay. So one in. When does that happen? Uh, possibly next Tuesday. Okay, fantastic. Uh, so, actually, so I wanted to ask you directly, the transition now, you're going to transition from DA to, to Washington uh, over the next couple of days, and uh, what's, yeah. what's, that, what's that like? Well, you know, we're in the office right now figuring all that, those things out. Usually someone's elected to Congress in November, and they have until January to get ready to get down there. We have about six days, so... Uh, I still have responsibilities here that I'm working on and certainly have to start putting things together so we're hit the ground running on Tuesday. And what happens to the uh, district attorney's office? Who takes over for you? Well, by operation of law, Mike, the, uh, the chief assistant takes over, Dan Master, and the governor does have the uh, opportunity to appoint an interim district attorney if the governor chooses to do so. And regardless of whether somebody's DA by operation of law or by appointment, they have to run this coming November. Right. So, so in theory, uh, although Governor Cuomo has been loath to make appointments, he did not make an appointment in Nassau County. They have an interim DA there. That's a high-profile position. Uh, so, the expectation it could go either way. Although in most cases, like in previous times, the governor probably would make an appointment. Uh, it nobody really knows right now. No, it's, you know, they, they, that, I would not be part of that process, so I'm not too sure what the governor's thinking now. Um, there's a lot of things going on in the state. The budget was passed. They're looking at other uh, bills, mayoral control of schools and whatnot, so I'm not too sure where this is going to land on the governor's radar screen. He may just let it go through November and let the electorate pick the next district attorney, or he may appoint. I'm not sure. So let's talk about your big victory on Tuesday night. Uh, and I say it's a, a for a Republican to get 60% in uh, anywhere in New York City, I don't care what district it is, is quite impressive. Were you happy with the victory? Were you happy with the margin? Were you happy with the turnout? Oh, absolutely. You know, we always wish the turnout would be uh, larger than it is just because we want people to exercise their right to vote. Uh, but I'm certainly thrilled with getting 60% of the vote in. But it's a very, very democratic district, and I think that just goes to show that the voters can sift through a lot of the nonsense during a campaign, mm -hmm. and they could certainly look at the issues that are important to them and look at uh, my record, what I've been able to do for the last nearly 20 years of representing the people of Staten Island. And uh, like I say, I need to get democratic votes, independent votes, conservative votes uh, in order to win, and last night we were able to get 60% of those people to agree with us. No question about that. Uh, are you concerned that you did not do as well in the Brooklyn portion of the district? No, you know, I, I, I have not gotten the opportunity uh, that I will have now to represent the people in the Brooklyn portion of the district. Uh, they're unfamiliar with my abilities. I'm unfamiliar with my, uh, my record. Uh, we used our campaign to try to introduce myself, but it was a short period of time. As you know, the governor called the race. It was only... 80-some-odd days from the time the race was called until the election. So I'll be spending my time in Congress not only 
uh, a, a good portion of time in the Staten Island portion of the district, but uh, also in the Brooklyn district because I'm going to represent everybody in the 11th congressional district. Now, you're going to be the lone Republican, as you pointed out, uh, several times in, in your speech. And, and uh, during the race, you pointed out that you'll be the lone Republican in the New York City congressional delegation. You think there'll be pressure from other air for areas of New York for you to deliver for them, people outside your district, because you're in the majority and that people are going to look to you for that kind of leadership, even though you're only a freshman? I think so, uh, Mike. I think it's a great opportunity, as I said, for the campaign, not only for the people of the 11th Congressional District, but the citizens of New York City, New York State, the region, to have uh, the lone Republican voice in the city delegation at a time the Republicans control both houses of Congress uh, is incredible responsibility, but it created a, a remarkable opportunity for all of us. So I think you're absolutely right. And uh, Mayor de Blasio, are you now going to be his go-to congressman, even though he might not be so popular in Staten Island? I'm not sure. He hasn't called yet, but uh, ah, okay. You know, I, I suspect that, you know, listen, uh, any, any, any resources I could bring home to the district certainly will benefit the entire city as well. So uh, I suspect, uh, you know, the mayor and I will be talking about some of his priorities and letting him know what mine are. Certainly. I, I imagine mm-hmm. that I imagine that will happen. Uh, so we'll... Last question for you, Dan. I know the time is short. You got a lot of transition going on. I should say, Congressman elect. Uh, are you going to have the opportunity to name the ferry boat after Mike Bloomberg? I'm not too sure that we have a bunch of uh, ferry boats being create, made now. Uh, I'm not too sure. By then, I won't be a freshman any longer, but I'm not sure that they give me the uh, the opportunity to do that. Uh, but listen, I'll tell you what. Mike Bloomberg's a good friend, and I think the people of New York City over the last 16 months really miss him. I, I would agree. I think he was, a, he was a great mayor for this city and a great mayor for Staten Island as well, and I think that uh, no question about that. Uh, and, you know, just to leave you with, a, with, a, with an interesting tidbit from the Victory Party is that there were a lot of people sporting bumper stickers that said, don't blame me, I voted for Joe Loda. So, uh, right. <laughs> so. I, I believe I, I've seen those, and I actually uh, agree with them. Okay, well, thank you very much. Uh, Congressman-elect Dan Donovan, we look forward to having you back on the show when you are Congressman Dan Donovan, and hopefully you'll do great work for the people of the city of New York for the 11th Congressional District. Congratulations on a big victory, and uh, onward and upward, as they say. Thank you so much for having me on the show, Michael. And this is Spin Class. Happy to welcome back to the show Tevi Troy, a good friend, as well as a former special assistant to the president. That would be uh, Bush 43, as well as a Secretary for Cabinet Affairs. Did I get that right, Tevi? Uh, I was um, and Deputy, Deputy Cabinet Secretary in the Bush White House. Okay, uh, Deputy, Deputy Car- Assistant to the President, and then uh, Deputy Secretary of Health and Human Services. Okay, well, I was going to get to that last uh, yeah, okay. Cabinet-type position afterward, <laughs> but uh, what is uh, eventually... You know what? These these titles are way too long. they got to simplify it, streamline. It's a, the, you know These titles, they go on and on. But here's... T- the shorter the title, the more powerful you are in Washington. Oh, well, then... Uh, so if you're Special Assistant to the Deputy Assistant Secretary, you're kind of uh, pretty far down the list. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's definitely a mouthful, and I, I say, you know, on the business cards, it definitely makes it difficult to get those uh, done. You know, really, they should have the business cards with just your name, and if you don't know who I am, then you know that. You know, if you don't know who I am, then that's you. Know, you, you obviously aren't in the know, or something like that. But here to talk to us about uh, the the presidential race, particularly on the Republican side, as well as uh, something we've been discussing, outreach specifically, which is becoming more and more featured, outreach to the Orthodox Jewish community amongst presidential candidates. So, uh, Tevi, it's a wide open Republican field right now, and I don't know if you're with uh, officially any campaign, but I am not. Okay, so that's that in itself I'd say is I'm interesting. I'm neutral, but I'm pro whatever Republican candidate is going to go up against Hillary Clinton. So that would not be neutral. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, you're not neutral in the race; you're neutral in the right. primary. But that makes you, that makes it good to speak to somebody like you, who well informed, who is now looking at the field and uh, can kind of size up the field as it is. I mean, we have it's just if you take the declare candidates even we got ted cruz marco rubio uh ben carson carly fiorina and now mike huckabee and if you take the undeclared candidates you've got jeb bush uh scott walker uh uh, uh wow i'm uh, rand paul rick uh, perry rick perry uh, uh, uh 
John Kasich, uh, uh, George Pataki, Bob Ehrlich. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Don't forget Lindsey Graham. Okay, so as that's uh, correct, and Lindsey Graham, I think, uh, I think will be a factor if he if he decides to run because uh, South Carolina has been one of the most important nominating states. So and he will be likely the most knowledgeable person on foreign affairs on the stage. Oh yes, I, I would I would definitely agree with that. Uh, although I think Marco Rubio is making a play for a close second, or at least trying to fill that niche. My, my hedge likely was only because John Bolton might get in, <laughs> and that that remains to be seen. I I don't know. I mean, I you know I look at you know Bolton says that he's running, but he's not really doing aside from going to forums. I mean, is he really doing the things that needed to run? But but let's just take a step back for a second. I think we can get in and kind of you know uh, go through the nitty gritty of each one of these. But let's look at the field for a second. I, and people say, well, it's a very deep field. It's a very wide open field. Um, but there's clearly tiers amongst this field. Correct. Oh yeah, I mean, well, first of all, you got to separate between the, those who are, have declared and those who are undeclared. And of those people you mentioned, some of them are not going to run. So, so that that's the case. But then, there well, who's are not going to run? Here's in terms of how seriously the media takes them. So Jeb Bush, Scott Walker, I'd say uh, Marco Rubio are, are taken the most seriously by the media, it seems so far. And then also, there's a question of how much money they can raise. Uh, Jeb Bush seems to be on top uh, on that. Um, uh, Scott Walker's doing doing pretty well, and Marco Rubio can also raise money. Um, and then there's the polls, and uh, Scott Walker seems to be doing best in the polls. So there, there's a whole bunch of different ways of looking at this. So there is uh, you have to look at the primary, however, by primaries that somebody has to win, right? You can't just say, okay, on paper, I'm going to win the money primary, I'm going to win the Tea Party primary, I'm going to win the neocon primary, and I'm going to be the favorite of this specific group. You have to look at it and say, I'm going to win Iowa, I'm going to win New Hampshire, I'm going to win South Carolina, Florida, and, and the like. I mean, there are actual, there is the actual polling and electing that takes place. So when 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 you look at it, the field look potentially a little bit different. And one, we didn't oh, yeah, mention, absolutely. We, I mean, look, you know, just, just give me, let me give you these names: um, Ed Muskie, uh, John Connolly, and uh, Gary Hart. All of those were presumed to be the front runners at some point in the in the their respective presidential elections, and none of them made it through the primaries. Well, that's true, and and we could also say that the winner of Iowa doesn't seem to be able to win the Republican primary. That, that that is true. The winner of Iowa does not necessarily win, but it sure, it sure helps. So uh, yeah, I'd rather win it than not win it. But but there's there's definitely not a direct correlation between winning Iowa and winning the nomination. And if if we were looking at oh I I forgot to mention Chris Christie. How could that happen? Okay, so I guess because our previous guest said that Chris Christie may not in the end run, but we have to certainly throw him out. You know, have him out there. I don't know what tier you would put him in. But uh, as far as, uh, you know, there are people out there who are certainly going to take a very strong look at the race and I think will, uh, you know, will we'll certainly uh, suck up some of that oxygen. Um, you know, Chris, it's interesting. You have all these different candidates uh, looking for the dynamic of having the uh, the sugar daddy, if you will, right, on the Republican side. They're looking for the one big guy to bankroll them. Uh, a la Foster Freeze and, you know, with Rick Santorum last time around, or, or Sheldon Adelson with Newt Gingrich. Uh, how is that? That's a, that's a different type of primary, if you will, or a different type of, uh, how, how is that going? How's that dynamic? Cause, you know, you, you're familiar with that world of, of, of those, you know, those top tier, uh, those top tier donors. As oh, well. yes, I hang out in my private jet with them every weekend. <laughs> well, I wasn't saying you socialize with them. I'm saying you're just familiar with them. But, but, but you know, what type, what type of dynamic from your perspective uh, as, as a Washington person is that, is that lending to the race? Is that, a, is that something that's uh, – yeah, so, so let me answer that. It's, it's basically uncharted waters because we, we don't have a lot of experience in this post-Super PAC world. We have one election cycle where we've seen it, and we saw – there's the ability of a Foster Freeze or a Sheldon Adelson to keep a candidate afloat, but those people do not appear to be capable to get someone the nomination. So Gingrich and Santorum stayed in the race longer than they would have ordinarily before the, the Super PAC era, but the, neither of them won. And so uh, I, I think you're better off with a diversified funding strategy that can keep you going for the long haul. It seems like uh, Jeb Bush is going to be doing well on that front. It also seems like Scott Walker has a strategy that will keep him going for a long time, even without a major super PAC 
under. He recognizes he won't have as much money as Bush, but he, he thinks he has enough money in to stay in for a long period. And, that, and that's key, because the, the way the primaries go this year, you can you cannot necessarily win Iowa and New Hampshire and still win some of those uh, elections that come right after, let's say, South Carolina, Florida, and then, then the primaries come in bunches. So there is a chance if you can survive you know, four to six weeks past Iowa and New Hampshire, that you could actually make a big run at things. Now let's just uh, focus on the Jewish piece here and the Jewish outreach uh, of the – and you've been, uh, as as one of your titles, or well, not an official title, was White House Jewish Liaison. So certainly you're familiar with the idea of Jewish outreach, uh, and I think you also uh, handled Jewish outreach for the Bush campaign. Uh, I helped the Bush campaign and the Romney campaign with Jewish outreach. Okay, so so let's say, but the the Jewish piece, if if you if you had to look at the, well, let me ask, let me phrase the question this way: If one were just reading the papers at the attention being lavished upon the Jewish community in the Republican primary, one would think that the Jewish community is a substantial portion, or at least not an insubstantial portion. I'll put it that way of the Republican primary electorate, but yet that is not the case. Well, they, I would say they are an insubstantial portion or negligible portion of the Republican primary electorate in states like Iowa and New Hampshire. So you're not going to win the Republican nomination just getting the votes of, of Republican Jews in Iowa and New Hampshire. However, they are important in the money primary. A lot of the big donors are, are Jews, and they're, they have very good fundraising networks. Uh, Support for Israel doesn't just help you with Jews, but it also helps you with evangelicals who are very pro-Israel. In previous days, it helped you with Reagan Democrats. I'm not sure how big a demographic that is any, anymore. But it's one of those issues that's seen as something that is indicative of where you are on foreign policy issues. And if somebody's going to be pro-America, they seem uh, if they're going to be pro-Israel, it seems that they're going to have a stronger stance on foreign policy. So it's helpful just in general foreign policy views. And then... When you get further down the road, the Jewish vote is important in key swing states like Florida and Ohio. And so you do want to get the, the Jewish vote on your side if you can. Now, Ted Cruz specifically has been uh, has been written about as having a specific Jewish strategy, particularly amongst the Orthodox community. You know, Ted Cruz is looking to slice off a piece of, you know, a niche, if you will, within the community. by having, And he has incredibly... Uh, significant, uh, you know, pro-Israel bona fides. So he, he's no question he's, he you know, has that track record. Uh, you know, is there enough of a slice to make that substantial for him? And are other people following his his lead? We talked earlier about Rand Paul going to Brooklyn. Um, you know, to just talk for a second about this strategy and in, in, if it, if you think it's effective. Yeah, Ted Cruz is so prevalent in Jewish events that the joke is that he's showing up at bar mitzvahs and brises. So, well, he uh, went for pay to a Pesach program. That's what he's he going to get to. He did go to a Pesach program. So um, he, he clearly has a, a, a not only an Orthodox strategy, but he has an Orthodox Jewish advisor, Nick Muzzin, who uh, knows the Orthodox world very well and is helping guide Cruz through that. Uh, look, Ted Cruz is a smart guy. He knows that there's not enough Jewish votes in the Republican primaries to get him there. But again, it helps with the fundraising. It helps with uh, the, securing the evangelical vote. And it's also, I mean, Ted, Ted Cruz, whatever people think of him, he's a man of principles, right? The guy has strong beliefs, and he really, really firmly believes in his heart that, that Israel is in the right, and he wants to stand up for them. And what about uh, Rand Paul in Brooklyn? Rand Paul goes to Brooklyn. What's the, uh, what's the secret sauce there? Well, that's actually an interesting play because Rand Paul uh, gets derided somewhat in the mainstream Jewish community uh, for being quite not quite as pro-Israel and um, uh, and the, um, the the I guess the ultra Orthodox community, the Brooklyn Orthodox community, uh, seems to be a little different from let's say the mainstream um, Jewish community as represented by let's say the the ADL or the AJC or the you know the, the standard alphabet soup of Jewish organizations. And so he's thinking maybe he can take a slice off the, the, the Jewish community, when, whereas the mainstream community may not support him. He may get support from the, from, the Brooklyn, uh, from the Brooklyn Jews. Now, do you see a lot of daylight between these candidates on Israel policy? Maybe perhaps, uh, except for Rand Paul, but a lot of, but, you know, you mentioned Lindsey Graham as going to be the most knowledgeable foreign policy-wise. But it's not like you have a lot of policy differences when it comes to Iran, when it comes to Syria, when it comes to Israel. Uh, between the Republican candidates, it's it's really a lot of them kind of blasting Obama. 
Well, I agree that whoever the Republican nominee is, with the possible exception of Rand Paul, is going to be very pro-Israel, and I think that's a good thing. So I'm, I'm happy to see that. I think on other foreign policy issues, you, you may very well see differences. Uh, just, let's just look at the, uh, the trade promotion authority issue that's popping up in Congress now. There, there's going to be differences among congressmen about, uh, among candidates about how to handle trade. Uh, I think there will be differences about how to um, uh, handle drone strikes, for example. Uh, remember, Rand Paul did his um, filibuster on the, on the Senate floor uh, about the use of drone strikes. So I, I think you may see differences among the candidates that emerge on foreign policy. But in general, they are critical of the Obama approach, and they are also critical of Obama's rough treatment of Israel. Okay, so if you can opine for us on the Democratic side if you will. So right now, if you look at it, it's Bernie Sanders versus Hillary Clinton, at least amongst declared candidates. Uh, what, what do you see as a, as, as, as the, as the path to victory for Hillary Clinton, uh, through the primary and then to the general election? Do you think it's, uh, it's realistic for, in, for her to kind of have this cakewalk? Um, will, will, you know, and what does that do for a Republican looking to challenge her? Well, Hillary apparently thinks that by staying quiet and not doing any tough interviews and uh, not weighing in on the issues, she'll she'll do fine. Um, I'm not sure that's right. Uh, we talked about people who were presumptive nominees in the past who didn't make it. I would have to add Hillary Clinton in 08 to that list. Everybody was assuming that she was going to get Correct. a nod. Uh, that said, she does seem to have more of an overwhelming advantage going into the primaries than any candidate I've ever seen in my lifetime in terms of overwhelming poll numbers, lack of challengers with stature and at the fundraising advantage so uh, and, and name recognition so so she, so she clearly is the most likely candidate on the democratic side that said this clinton foundation stuff is not playing well uh, bill clinton's defense uh, of her i didn't think went over very well he seems to be i uh, saw so one of the late night late night jokes is that um He's, uh, he's the explainer-in-chief, um, except when it comes to explaining himself, and that's when he kind of falls down on the job. So uh, he, uh, there, there, are, there are clearly some problems in Clinton camp, but their overwhelming advantages going in may be sufficient to, to take them over the top. And does and is their ability to kind of shep, uh, hoard resources throughout the primary season uh, affect whatever Republican goes up against them in the, in, after the, in November? I don't think so. Um, I think she, after last experience, wants to make sure she gets that nomination, so I don't think that they will be cheap in terms of their, their spending going in. Uh, she wants to make sure she wins. And um, whoever the Republican is, I think, is going to have access to significant amounts of money. This is going to be a – it's not a billion-dollar race. I think it's going to be a multi-billion-dollar race. And, and uh, the Republicans are frustrated with not having the White House for eight years. And I, I think the Republicans will be able to raise a goodly amount of money, as will the Democrats. It's not always seemly and pleasant, but uh, I think that's what we're going to see. There's going to be a lot of money in this race, and it's going to be a lot of fun for people like you and me who like watching the horse race. Yeah, certainly no question about that. And, uh, you know, ho- hopefully we'll, uh, as, as we move along, we'll expand our discussion, uh, you know, as the race shapes up. We, we'll find out exactly who's in, who's out, who's running, who isn't. So thank you, Tevi Troy, for joining us. Tevi Troy of the Hudson Institute, former Deputy Secretary for Health and Human Services. Got that one. Thanks so much. Oh, thank thank you. you. And uh, we are going to wrap up this show on Spin Glass. A little commentary, as I mentioned earlier. Uh, we have... Uh, a government in in Israel, uh, 61 members, as uh, as Bait Yehudi joins the government and right up against the deadline. And what I was saying earlier that this is more like poker than chess. You know, offer we refer to politics as a as a chess game. You, you know, trying out smart your opponent and uh, um, you know make them do things that they don't necessarily want to do. Well, in this case, uh, that you know certainly happened, but not necessarily in the way anybody was expecting. Uh, a Victor Lieberman drops out of the coalition and or his declines to enter the coalition uh, and decides that he's not going to be a, a foreign minister and go into opposition, which is really incredible because the guy would have been foreign minister uh, and forces Netanyahu then or or strengthens the hand of Bayi Yehudi. Uh, as we you know we talked about last week, what Bennett was going to get, um, he. Uh, now Ayelet Shaked, who is uh, his number two, uh, Ayelet Shaked is going to get the Justice Ministry. Um, Baidi's in the coalition for 61. 
perhaps, but Lieberman really uh, incredibly so when you think about from a negotiating position, folded early, uh, decided to take his chips and, and walk away from the table uh, with, with really nothing to show for it. And he's in an opposition which includes uh, all parties far, far, far to the left of him uh, and really, uh, really going to have very little voice. That means that you know, those who voted for him, the Russian, uh, many from the Russian community are really going to be without the absorption ministry, uh, that they had. And it's really, uh, from my point of view, politically, a shocking, uh, shocking development and really strengthened the hand of Bayou Houdi. Bennett was able to come and by sticking out and by sticking around for a long time and really not showing, uh, his cards, turning his phone off, as they said, to put his phone in airplane mode and decide not to take calls, not to speak to the media. Uh, really uh, salvaged an, uh, a, a decent election season for him and his party. Uh, we had talked about the fact that he had really lost a lot uh, from Netanyahu in the election because he because the Netanyahu grabbed a lot of seats from him in that late surge for Likud, and then he was not rewarded that he got a lesser lesser uh, ministry, which is the education ministry, managed to rebound, get the justice ministry, and as we see, the the Israeli system is so fascinating in the way these things happen. Uh, this would never happen in the U.S. Uh, this type of thing, these these backroom. Uh, these backroom deals and the way this is negotiated and the politics of this are just so amazing. Quite the high stakes poker game that has just happened in Israel. Now there is a new government and Netanyahu will be at the head of it with 61 seats. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoyed the show. We will see you again next week here on the Nachum Siegel Network.